Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. So hello again and welcome back to the second series of Bone Up the podcast. We've made it, Richie. We made it over the summer. We did our our live broadcast from Manchester and uh, and we're back for the second series. Yeah, welcome back, everyone. It's uh, really good to have you here with us again. I've really missed our chats, David, and I'm really excited about getting series two of the podcast up and running. We've got some really wonderful guests lined up for the season. And... For the listeners, in case you didn't know, we did the live version of Bone Up at the Bone Research Society conference at the end of last spring. We won an award. We got the Neil McKenzie Public Engagement Award for this podcast. So thank you to everybody who's been listening and supporting us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to everybody who's been sending in emails and thank you to the BRS for the award. It's really nice to get some positive feedback and it's really nice i hope to be able to empower people maybe to take control of their bone health yeah i mean it is it a nice thing to get um it's obviously we weren't doing it to win awards but uh it's nice as you say it's a it's positive feedback and it's encouraging that someone else other than our direct family members are obviously listening to us richie and uh and it's nice to know that certainly the bone research community values values the podcast in some way so yeah that's uh that's good uh it seems i mean we were hoping to be back sooner than we were we haven't been doing nothing we have been doing some recordings and some work on the podcast folks but for various reasons we haven't just been able to bring that to you live but uh, we're here now and we're raring to get going and i feel like the podcast is going from strength to strength we have some amazing guests today we're going to be talking about osteoporosis medicines and we're going to introduce you the listener to the people and processes that have given us medicines for osteoporosis and i think that's really exciting concept we're going to be able to interview and bring to you the motivations and the reasons behind why people have made drugs for osteoporosis and i think that's really exciting so without further ado we should probably get on and introduce our guests for today. So listeners, we're here today with two really exciting guests to kick off season two. We have Cesar Libanati, who is the Head of External Affairs and Medical Strategy for Bone at UCB. Cesar is an internist and a geriatrician by training and has worked in academia for over 20 years. And for the last 18 years, Cesar has been involved in new drug development, always in the area of osteoporosis, And also today, we're lucky to have Alistair Henry, who is Head of Discovery Science and UK Site Head for UCB. 
Alistair has worked in academia for 10 years and has been working in drugs discovery for nearly 25 years. That's 35 years total experience. And Alistair is a rare biophysicist. Welcome both to the show. Caesar, Alistair, welcome to Bone Up. Uh, really excited to talk to you. I've been sitting on some of these questions for years today, so delighted to have you all. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Great to be here. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. I know you're both really busy. We're keen to give the listeners at home some insight into the people behind osteoporosis medicines. And I suppose the place where we'd like to start is how did you both get involved in developing new medicines for osteoporosis? I wonder, Caesar, if you'd kick us off. Sure, love to. So I've been involved in uh, mineral metabolism and bone disease all my life since uh, finishing medical school. And even though um, I trained in internal medicine and then geriatrics, the skeleton, which I always saw as the most, uh, the smartest of all organs in the body, uh, uh, just basically grabbed by uh, my interest and my attention. And I dedicated uh, my life uh, first in academia, doing research and seeing patients almost always in the area of osteoporosis and some rare bone diseases. And then that led to a recruitment from one of uh, the major uh, today biopharma companies in bone to help move forward uh, what were new drugs that uh, could have a potential to help patients with osteoporosis and fractures. And Alistair, how did you get started? For me, my journey was somewhat more accidental. Uh, I joined the program because as a biophysicist and a structural biologist, I was really interested in the, this, this novel protein that sat, uh, appeared to sit at the very core of controlling bone mineral density, which was scrostin. And at the time that I, I became interested in that, we didn't know anything about its structure. We made predictions that most of which, in fact, probably all of which turned out to be wrong, um, but we wanted to find out how this molecule worked and exerted its effect. And that's how I joined as part of a program that was trying to understand that and consequently trying to understand how we could intervene with that um, to generate a new medicine. I'm going to be a bit of a patient advocate today and ask you questions that patients ask me that I don't know the answer to. One of the commonest things when a patient comes into my clinic and I say, here's a new medicine for your bones, the first question I ask is never how efficacious is this in terms of reducing vertebral fracture or what is the mechanism? The first question they always ask is, what are the side effects? How much do side effects or adverse effects influence your, your drug development or do you think purely about the potential benefits of the drug as it's being developed and the side effects sort of come later as an irritant. I'm happy to join, if I start from the very early point of that, this is a question that we would ask ourselves right on day one. So we, we want to understand um, what the potential, what the potential difficulties might be, the adverse effects, because all drugs have to be both efficacious and safe. And the safety question is something that we will be thinking about right from day one. You know, how does this pathway, this molecule, where else does it operate? You know, would there be potentially, if we intervened at this point, would it do other biology? Or are there other molecules in the body that are similar to this that we might end up interfering with, if you like, by accident? We will constantly ask that question right at the beginning of a program and then constantly test for it 
throughout the entire program and before we ever get to the clinic. And then, of course, constantly looking for it you know, at that point. And, and Cesar will have much more to say, I'm sure, about that. But, but it's a question that we will ask literally from day one. Yes, I agree. It's uh, a key aspect of uh, drug development. And it didn't used to be that way, to be frank, uh, when we basically tested uh, different compounds. Nowadays, the development of new drugs is extremely, extremely targeted. And we understand and find the pathways that are determinants of a particular disease. And therefore, as Alastair just said, we're able to really get a very good insight of what could be the potential side effects. And uh, from there uh, moves uh, the, the development program where we monitor for uh, side effects, both potential and uh, signals that we may see across the entire development from the preclinical all the way to clinical. And in the preclinical, we conduct uh, usually studies that are uh, equivalent to lifetime exposure. So we have a very good insight of, um, of the side effects. Now, at the end of the day, you need to remember also that the, there is, through the regulatory agencies, a very thorough and a conscious mechanism to get an approval. And for a drug to be approved nowadays, you need to demonstrate that the risk-benefit is positive. So no matter what, if you use a drug according to the guidelines or according to the label of the drug, then uh, you are really assured that uh, the risk-benefit for your patient is, uh, is positive because that has been demonstrated in the large clinical trials and endorsed by the health authorities. I think that'll be very reassuring for patients. When, they, when their first question to me is, what are the adverse effects of this drug? I'd be able to reassure them then, well, actually the men who invented this drug, that was their first question as well. Indeed. So Caesar, you mentioned there that uh, the way that drugs are developed has changed, that perhaps the process has become more rigorous, perhaps there's a move from away from discovering drugs by chance to really understanding the mechanisms behind a disease, the physiological and pathophysiological pathways that underpin it, and then trying to target a new drug with uh, an action that will interfere with that pathway and therefore prevent the disease. How much investment relatively is put into understanding the disease versus working out how to treat the disease? Yes, um, great question. Both are uh, extremely important. And uh, the understanding of the disease starts with the understanding of what is the unmet medical need. What are the problems that the patients do have that still, despite the available therapies, require a solution? And uh, that leads to um, already in designing or trying to find out the target, which uh, mechanism one would like to um, interfere with. It could be a stimulation of a mechanism or it could be an inhibition of a mechanism. One would uh, be able to um, result in a positive impact on that particular unmet medical need. So both are extremely, extremely important. But things have changed, correct? And I've been um, lucky enough, and so has Alistair, uh, of... Um, <clears throat> working in the development of two drugs that were extremely, extremely targeted to a mechanism of action. 
it used to be, and Alastair will remember that uh, much more than I because I was not in uh, drug development at the time, where you would test a compound which you thought could have an impact uh, through your hypothesis in thousands of cell lines, really thousands of cell lines, and, and find out through a um, surrogate uh, endpoint in the cell in, in, in the cell uh, behavior that there could be an action. And from then on, you try to move it forward. It used to be that uh, you screen uh, tens of thousands of compounds to then select uh, a few thousands, and from then on, you know, keep the funnel going until you selected one that you thought uh, would uh, potentially have a positive uh, risk-benefit ratio. Nowadays, it's entirely different. By the time you design the drug, these are designing designer drugs, you know that the uh, interference or the simulation of a particular important pathway will occur. It's just a matter of deciding and finding out how much. If I can add to that, I mean, the hypotheses that we can create now, we have different tools than what we had when I first started in this industry. I mean, the genetics that we now have and be able to profile um, vast numbers of patients, not just patients with a specific disease, but different types of patients. And you actually start now to see causal links between the genetics and the phenotype that you see in those patients, sometimes directly relating to their disease, but sometimes actually the complete opposite phenotype. And it starts to tell you something about the pathway. Now, those are then enable us to drive and devise hypotheses that we can subsequently test. Now, I love the fact that Caesar says that everything is designer, and I would love to be able to say today that we made only ever one molecule ever once for every single program. Of course, it's not true. Um, but the designer piece is true in this sense, that we are now much more focused on exact pathways that we've defined, whether through human pathobiology, or whether we've done it through the genetics. Um, you know, it's a deep understanding of the biology and of the disease that has allowed us to know what nodes that we're going to intervene in, and then subsequently setting up assays that predict that back to us. So then we can screen large numbers of molecules to find absolutely, exquisitely molecules with exactly all the positive properties, and go back to our original question about the question of safety, without all the potential negative properties. So we can screen for both simultaneously. And then, and, and from that selection, choose the ideal molecule that will deliver exactly what we want for the benefit of that patient population. Um, really hypothesis driven, but we have new tools. You know, the whole genetics world has opened up new tools, and you know, and certainly for the within the osteoporosis community, you know, there that, that was one of the big breakthroughs for us was a piece of genetics that's nothing to do with osteoporosis directly but actually gave an insight into osteoporosis that allowed us to, to, to think about how we could intervene in a very different way. That's really interesting. We spoke about sclerose, sclerosteosis and sclerostin in our, in our last episode of season one at the, at the BRS conference. If people want to go back, they can have a listen. I was wondering, you were talking there about testing thousands and tens and thousands of molecules. In coming up with successful molecules, how many molecules do you think you tested in total as you funnel down? Well, I, I, it's a fantastic question. I'll answer, if I were to ask you what you, you think the number is, uh, here's the test. Here, yeah, it's a live podcast. Tell us what the number you think is, and I'll tell you how close you are. I always crack under this kind of pressure. 
60,000. Oh, I was going to go for 15 or 20,000. I was going to be much more conservative. So, so it's, it, the drug is an antibody, so they come from B cells. And if I told you that we will have screened over a billion B cells to find the one that makes the drug or makes the sequence that we wanted, over a billion. So, so now that's why we have to do this with high automation, with parallel uh, uh, assay designs, where we look at large numbers all at once, and we are searching in that space. We have looked at over a billion to find molecules with unique properties to drive the biology that we want. Is there ever tension between the two sides of the company almost where you, you spend so much time and effort and money understanding the disease and developing the molecule, you develop the drug and you give it there for testing and it reaches phase three trials and it doesn't work or there's an adverse effect. Is, is there pressure? Is there, is there, I'm sure you'll tell me there's no everyone works smoothly and professionally. There must be, must be tension there occasionally, is there, with all that work sometimes and yet it fails at the last step? The, the trick, of course, is being able to understand the likelihood of success early on. I mean, we talk about fail early, fail cheap, i.e., uh, and that's where, because we don't want to waste both our financial and our human resource going down, exploring what ultimately are unproductive uh, ends, because ultimately that doesn't benefit patients. You know, we need to be putting our effort into things that really will benefit. The patient community and so if you have phase three failures do occur i would like to think that we are able to design both the experimental work that takes us up to first demand and then beyond that such that we are looking for those endpoints as early as we possibly can to continually build our confidence of success such that those failures should not occur as to the tensions I don't think Caesar and I have ever shouted at each other, so I think it, uh, that's that's for sure. Uh, but you know, it's always it's it's the unknown. We are doing something that is novel, so we cannot claim to know everything up front. Uh, and that's that piece of humility, I think, that says that not knowing everything up front, how do we work together to get the best success? Yes, if I if I may compliment uh, everything that Alice has said, which is very very true is that there's also a difference between uh, the screening that we used to do with um, with uh, different molecules. When um, Alistair mentions we tested billions of antibodies, which is absolutely correct, they were all directed at the same protein. All the antibodies, to some extent, do work. What we, what we screened then is the one that we thought would have the best characteristics for the antibody regarding the half-life, regarding uh, the, the degree of, um, of, um, of linkage to the, to the specific target, etc. So it's a little bit of a, of a different uh, screening, but it's very tedious and we're very glad that robotics do most of the work. It's really interesting that you say that. Which bit of the research do you prefer? The bit at the beginning when you're trying to understand the disease? or the bit when you're actually chasing down the molecule. And I guess that might be really exciting while you're on tenderhooks waiting for the right one to come through. 
Yeah, myself, I, I, I think both are extremely fascinating. Um, I've been involved, I've been lucky enough to be involved, particularly in my academic uh, years, in uh, all aspects from the early uh, discovery of uh, basic uh, cell research all the way to translational research and then clinical trials. And then, of course, when I moved into, um, into industry, my job was largely now in the uh, moving forward of a molecule that has already been proven uh, to be safe in uh, preclinical work. And now it was a matter of uh, setting up the clinical trials to bring it to registration and commercialization. It's all exciting because it's all new. I mean, it's a voyage of discovery. I mean, finding new targets is a voyage of discovery. I, that's, that's fundamentally exciting. And then, as you say, chasing down the molecule. I mean, we are asking, you know, when you think about it, we're, we are, we're creating molecules that, first of all, have never existed in the world before. Uh, I mean, think about that. They've never existed in the world before. And then, actually, on, on top of that, and we're going to ask them to become a medicine. So, so that, has, that, that has everything from the, all the biological properties that they, you know, they drive the biology that we talk about, you know, the effect that they would have on human pathobiology, but also, you know, we've got to be able to formulate them, we've got to be able to manufacture it, it's got to be stable, you know, all those other pieces. We're asking the molecule to do an awful lot. And, and it's, it, I, the excitement is, is you're chasing that down. And, and the sooner we can get there, the sooner we benefit the patients that we actually are motivated by. I mean, I've never sat in a clinic. Actually, this is probably a terrible confession. I've never sat in a clinic with an osteoporosis patient. But I do know something of their story. I'm not a physician, but we all know people that are touched by this. And you know the impact that it makes on them through people that we know. And there is an emotional pull. I could make a difference to this if we can deliver this. Um, it's really nice to hear you say that. I think patients will, will appreciate hearing you say that as well. It's nice that there's a human face and, uh, and someone, as you say, who is sort of touched by the idea of being able to, you know, improve lives. People, it's something we talked about in an earlier episode. Someone said, you know, if you change a guideline, you can, you can change the world for thousands of people. Well, certainly if you identify a new molecule and develop a new drug, then you can change the world for many more thousands, millions of osteoporosis patients than I can ever do sitting in a clinic, seeing them one at a time. I mean, another, I think I know the answer to this one, but patients do ask me this quite a bit. Why are all the new osteoporosis treatments injections, doctor? What happened to the tablets? I, I, I think I know the answer, but, but, uh, it would be interesting to hear your, your answer to that. I mean, I, I'll give you a two-part answer. Of course, not all new medicines are injectables. And, and of course, the injectables really are, for, in most cases, are of course, this new class of medicine, the biologics, um, you know, which are based on the monoclonal antibodies, you know, a, a great British invention from the 1970s. You know, but it's, it's based on that technology. But those molecules are very, very, very difficult to formulate as a, as a tablet, as an oral medicine. That's why the biologics are injectables. Now, that doesn't mean, though, of course, that new medicines always have to be biologics. And, of course, there is a whole new space for new tablets, as we might put it like that, the, the small molecules, as, as we know them, that have different mechanisms of action and different profiles and will suit different types of patients in different types of settings. And so there's space for both. Uh, and they're very complementary, but 
the biologics of the revolution that's come to us uh, in, and in the last 30 years, that's what's been the big development in pharmaceuticals. Can we just clarify for the listeners at home what biologics are? So, so biologics are um, drugs that are based on the monoclonal antibodies. And antibodies are the, the molecules that we make normally. As, 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 as normal human beings, we make antibodies as our defense mechanism against pathogens and, and other problems like that. It's a normal piece of our biology. And what we're able to do is to, is to replicate that biology synthetically and make those monoclonal antibodies that can deliver the biological effect that we want, not now just against pathogens, which is what the, bio, the body normally does, but actually to deliver other biology. Uh, and in this case, to, to inhibit certain biological processes, which lead us to the effect, the clinical effect that we want. But they're, they're basically, they're, they're proteins, monoclonal antibodies um, that are specifically found and designed for this you know, specific clinical use. And perhaps if I may help clarify for the, um, the audience, um, the, the, these medications, the biologics, are made, these are antibodies that are made by the same cells that our own body makes the antibodies. Correct. It may, in, in some cases, they may not be from a human source, maybe from an animal source, uh, but the cells, uh, these um, uh, B cells that are part of the lymphatic system, uh, are uh, in nature, in, um, in human and animal nature, what makes these antibodies. What we do is we, we select uh, those cells by uh, priming them to make an antibody specific against a particular protein that we have identified as being in the pathway or being the cause of a particular disease. That's interesting. I mean, to bring it back to the clinic, so we've got our new molecule and we've got our new drug and I've reassured the patient about the adverse effects. The next stumbling block for the physician is who's going to pay for this because there are new drugs, of course, come onto the market and then the regulatory or the statutory authorities won't pay or set barriers for them. And how much does the funding influence sort of big pharma, if I can put it like that, in developing drugs, knowing that you can develop a very exciting molecule, but if, if it doesn't get paid for, or if it's not financially viable, maybe biologically viable, if it's not financially viable, it will never get near the bones of my patients. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a very important one. And, then, and one that keeps evolving, correct, as uh, the reimbursement, the realities of um, the reimbursement and, uh, and, and the health economics of uh, particular countries uh, play a significant role. Uh, early on in development, we discuss uh, what is the commercialization pathway, assuming we have a particular uh, medication that is able to move forward because it can have a positive impact. And uh, there are areas in, in medicine where you have uh, great um, medications, and they may not be perfect, uh, that nowadays are extremely, extremely affordable and extremely cheap. And, and that puts pressure on, uh, on pharma companies because developing these drugs, as you can imagine, is extremely costly, uh, assuming uh, the drug will not fail. And uh, you always have the, that possibility, which increases the cost of uh, development. So... Uh, it is uh, that is an area of uh, I would say a significant uh, tension in uh, in companies because sometimes you may have a medical need but you don't have a way 
for um, developing a drug that would eventually be uh, be reimbursed. Now, that is that to be frank, that is also a societal question, correct? How uh, do government uh, spend uh, the money? Uh, a lot of money are spent in things that we may we may say have uh, absolutely little, no value, have a negative value. Uh, for example, uh, weapons. Um, I, I, that's just an example, correct? Uh, but if a society decides uh, through our ability to um, to vote that we want to spend more money on that and in the health of the um, of the patient and developing of new therapies, then uh, so be it. But it's a, it's a very fair point and an important one. I wonder if I can add, of course, one way we can mitigate in this one is to really think about how do we differentiate what we produce. The medicines that we have really have to have not merely an incremental effect in the life of those patients, but a game-changing effect. And if we can really move to that type of biology, then it because then the question of funding doesn't go away. As he's absolutely right, never it doesn't go away, um, but it it makes the the ability to really set out the value of that molecule, yeah, you know, that medicine, much easier. So really looking for differentiated molecules, you know, that really really drive that game-changing benefit for that patient population. And that's one way at least we can, we can be cognizant of the funding question. And it's a great question. And it's perhaps the way in which we're able as, a, as, as an industry to really make sure that what we bring forward has a huge positive effect to those patients. Yeah, I sometimes when this comes up in the clinic and patients say to me, just why is it so expensive? And I mean, I do sometimes use the line that we have to pay not just for this drug that you've got that works, but I sometimes say for the 999 others that that you developed that didn't work, you tell me it should actually be 999 million <laughs> because because you tested a billion molecules. But, but you know, not that, that I mean, it's my, my job is to work with the patient and not, I suppose, in some ways with funding, but I think we have a duty of candor to, to discuss this with patients now and as I say, I do sometimes find myself explaining it like that, saying you're paying for all the research and not just for the just not just for the pen that, that, that comes in the packet. Actually in Europe you I think you have a view, even a better line, which is you should check what the price of that medication is in the US. And uh, and uh, therefore uh, uh, you will uh, be able to show your patient that what they're paying is really, really nothing. And uh, some of the examples are absolutely I- incredible. Uh, <laughs> I could quote somebody, it doesn't matter. And, and the prices are usually uh, public. If you look at the internet, you can you can find out the price in the US for any one of the medications. Uh, they are, they are, we don't want they are, to they are, they are, US listeners just too much. <laughs> they're kind of a bargain in, the, uh, in, in, in Europe. That's the bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> And we're not just paying for those things that didn't work. And of course, there are projects that we run that we we terminate. We and for whatever reason, they were they were good ideas that did not ultimately translate to what we wanted because we don't fully understand all the biology and everything. We are learning. You know, it's it's it's, it's a voyage of discovery. I mean, I'm head of discovery. There's sort of a you know, it's a it's a it's a the, the, the sort of there's a clue in the title. We're we're finding stuff out, and sometimes we're wrong, and and we're paying for as you say things where we didn't get it right. But actually, what even when we've got it right, the amount of work we have to do to get it to that point, which is a risk, financial risk that the company takes at that point, right to the end, that's what we're paying for. You know, 10 years worth of incredible work 
to go from a good idea to a molecule that we can put in the hands of physicians um, to give to patients. And, the, and it's that piece that we're having to, to, I think, quite reasonably say, actually, that costs money uh, and we need to do it again. Yeah, just to put in perspective, the trials in osteoporosis, the phase three trials, cost in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so um, when you put that in perspective, uh, it is uh, a very significant amount of money. And, and that's just the phase three. And before that, you've got all of the other trials as well. You've got the molecules. Of course. Yeah, yeah of course. Of course. That's right. And then you need to make the drug, the antibodies. The, the, that has a cost. You need to package it. You need to... Um... So um, sometimes I'm surprised <laughs> that... Uh, the medications can be made um, available at, uh, some of these medications can be made available at the price uh, they are. And uh, we at UCB have that very much in mind where uh, we want to make the medications available for the patients that need it. Uh, and uh, that is part of the uh, negotiations uh, that uh, go on with uh, the different, in the different countries regarding the reimbursement. We're digging down into some really interesting topics here. Caesar, you were talking a little bit about the responsibility of society to think about whether or not we need drugs to treat conditions, what conditions we should be looking to treat. And Alistair, you talked about trying to come up with drugs that will be a game changer, that will really improve people's lives. And I wonder, are patients and society involved in your research in any way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tremendously so. We involve through um, patient groups, the society uh, responsible for uh, patient uh, interactivities and, uh, and um, <clears throat> representation for the different conditions. We sample their, their thoughts. Nowadays, they get involved into the development of the protocols to help us decide what is important to them and ensure that those particular endpoints are captured. So that is key. Uh, what we do is for the patients, and if we don't hear them and we don't listen to what they have to say and what their needs are, then uh, even the most successful medications will, not, will have uh, no, uh, no place in, uh, in the medical armamentarium. You know, I can build on that. I mean, at UCB, our strap line is inspired by patients driven by science. And in fact, actually, the patients really are central. Uh, now, you know, do we have patients working in our labs? Well, apart from, of course, we have colleagues who have diseases, you know, and for whom, in a sense, they are both colleagues and patients. They are, they are both. We are all, at some point, become that in different ways. But it's, no, we don't bring patients in in that sense. But, you know, they provide for us many things. I mean, one is the inspired piece. Actually, there is a direct emotional driver which is an important one in that space. But also, you know, we want to connect very quickly with human pathobiology. And in fact, it's patients that give us access to that. You know, I really want to understand the malfunction within disease. You know, it is patients that give me that, that insight through actually their willingness to participate, whether in donating tissue, accepting you know, samples, through clinical trials, and so on. Those are the, these are the, the patients are inputting throughout the whole discovery phase, you know, right through, right from very early target discovery, all the way through to the development of molecules uh, at the very end. And of course, they advocate for why it's important that their disease is, is considered 
serious. I mean, it paints an advocacy in relation to now government priority, in relation to funding decisions. You know, patients are the voice that are able to say about their condition, why it matters to them. You know, and, and it's important for us to be able to hear that and also to understand them in another way. You know, there's no point in us developing a medicine when actually, I mean, let me give you a different example, but you know, we worked on a, worked on a molecule that where patients with rheumatoid arthritis, but they wanted to have self-administration, but often with hands that are very, you know, very distorted with their disease. You know, there's no point asking that person to try and manipulate a fiddly little syringe, you know, every other day. You know, you needed to even think about the design of the packaging so that they could self-administer, they could actually do this with their limitations, if I might put it that, with their condition. So from first to last, the patient has to be involved so that in that case, you know, those patients with those problems could still actually administer the, you know, the drug at home, giving them access. Quite incredible. Many of our listeners are patients. Many are GP colleagues as well. I'm conscious that the patients I see in clinics are often those at very high risk or complicated or patients for whom I will be prescribing some of these new and exciting and indeed expensive drugs. If you had a thousand pounds, let's say, to spend, would you rather spend it on one high risk patient who gets a new expensive antibody or would you spend it on a thousand patients to have them screened for milder osteoporosis who could be treated with bisphosphonates and I know I'm asking employees of a pharmaceutical company that and it's a little bit of a philosophical question as well but does the money go to me for the expensive new drug or to my GP colleague to screen a thousand patients? Yeah that's a great question and uh, we struggle with that as well correct um, all the time. Uh, I think we all would agree or at least my position is that prevention is worth a lot and um, in an ideal wor world, uh, you wouldn't have to use um, uh, very powerful drugs to, to solve a condition that could have been uh, prevented. Um, but we don't live in an ideal world, and uh, therefore these diseases do develop. So uh, ideally, there should be a balance, because you, I don't think you can abandon those patients who have the need, because for whatever reason, they developed a very significant condition and uh, not uh, held them. On the other hand, uh, we have the responsibility as physicians, as well as uh, members of a company, to indeed educate and ensure that uh, we can prevent as much as possible any particular condition. So we're going to have to bring this uh, interview to a close now. If I could squeeze in one little question. How does it feel to have improved lives and to save the lives of so many people with the medicines that you've created? Alistair, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, for me, it is both a exciting and yet at the same time, massively humbling experience to actually be associated with molecules, you know, drugs that are making the difference to patients' lives is an enormous thing. I mean, it's it's both exciting scientifically, uh, but at the same time, to be able to benefit people, I mean, that's why I'm in the industry. You know, right? That's the driver for me, is to be able to change the lives of these people. And to realize that you've done it is just phenomenal. It's an exciting thing, a humbling thing. Uh, it's why I get out of bed. 
Yeah, I don't think I can add to that. I, I echo exactly what Alistair uh, said. Thank you both very much for your time. It's been enthralling. It's been a huge privilege to talk to you both. And uh, Alistair, the door's always open if you want to come and sit in my osteoporosis clinic here at Altmagelvin Hospital in Northern Ireland. Thank you. I may well take you up on it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This was great uh, to, uh, to be able to have the opportunity to um, share these thoughts and those great questions and provide some uh, answers to that. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Great opportunity. Thank you very much. Real privilege. So, David, what were your takeaways today? Well, you know, isn't it great to, to, to hear the voices and sort of, well, for our point of view, see the faces behind these drugs? Um, and it puts a human face to the development of new medicines uh, for us. People often say to me, you know, thank you for, for getting me that medicine. Thank you for making things better. But of course, I don't take the credit for the drugs that I prescribe at the clinic. And I think to hear the passion behind this, this isn't just a mechanical scientific process that Cesar and Alistair talked to us about. There are people who actually really want to make a difference to people's lives and have a, have a passion about it. And I think that's actually quite inspiring. And it's also reassuring, I think, for patients to hear, we talked a little bit about the safety of medicines and how the side effects and the safety of medicines it is you know, their first thought, it goes hand in hand with everything else right from the start. So yeah, I, I find it interesting. I find it reassuring. And it's nice to hear that the work's still going on and that we're, you know, we're looking forward to other medicines down the pipeline. Um, as, a, as a basic scientist, Richie, what did you take from that? The thing I really took away was how much Alistair and Caesar really love what they're doing. When we were doing the interview, it felt like we were all having a really great time. Everybody was just enjoying talking about bone. I, I get the feeling that Alistair and Caesar, you know, they live, breathe and eat bone. <laughs> the enthusiasm, the energy and the drive that they must have to be able to live, deliver new medicines is absolutely incredible. Must be huge numbers of people involved, very difficult and time-consuming and resource-intensive research. We were talking about the billions of molecules that they searched through when they were looking to find successful ones. I really find it quite awe-inspiring, to be honest. Uh, that, that people can do research that has such important impacts on people's lives. And just how much they love doing that. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I hope the listeners at home who heard the interview can feel more confident about the medicines that they're taking now. Having heard, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, the people that made these medicines, what they went through to be able to develop them, I think, I think that will give people comfort and I think it will give them support and I think it will give them confidence. It's lovely to see that chain, isn't it? You're the, the basic scientist and you're doing the, the work on how, how bone is made and how bone responds to certain stresses. And you're producing the work almost that, that allows people like Alistair and Cesar to choose those molecules, you know, those billion molecules they're looking at. You're giving them the idea of where they should be looking. They look at all those molecules, they follow some through, they find one, they work on it, they produce an amazing drug. And then I can take that to the clinic and give that to my patients. And it's lovely to see that chain from the really fundamental work that you do 
right through the pharma company producing medicines, right through, as I say to me, giving it to my patients who come to see me at the clinic who have broken a hip or, or broken a shoulder or who had very high risk of doing those things. Um, it's nice for us all to get together in the, in the same virtual room almost. Yeah, I really hope that one day my research could contribute in some very tiny and small way towards that kind of pathway you described going from uh, something on a lab bench uh, or a particle accelerator all the way through to a patient. That would just be the most amazing, wonderful journey to go on. And I'd love to get Alistair at the clinic to show him the benefit that the drugs that he has developed actually have in the lives of patients. We might hold him to that, invite him along. (laughs) Alistair, the invites are on the way to you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Really hope you enjoyed the first episode of Series 2. It's been lovely having you with us. We're really excited to get going again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.